Hello and welcome to the Hoover Institution's 2016 Carmel Valley Conference. I'm Chris Dower, Hoover's Director of Marketing and Strategic Communications. Our speaker in this podcast is Victor Davis Hansen, the Martin and Illy Anderson Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution. The title of his talk is What Happened to Our Campuses? And it was recorded on May 6th, 2016. I don't have an answer to what happened to them because it's been 29 years since uh, some of you remember the closing of the American Mind uh, or J.D. Hirsch's cultural literacy. I think it's 27 years ago since Jesse Jackson said, he he ho ho, Western Civ has got to go at the Stanford campus, and they lim- eliminated the Western Civ requirement. Uh, I wrote a book in 1998, co-authored, called Who Killed Homer, and another one called Bonfire of the Humanities that suggested that this was so outrageous that it couldn't go on. And, and it sort of simmered that we thought that the pushback had had some effect. And yet, as we look at the campus today, it's had no effect. These trends that were so worrisome in the 1980s and 90s have only accelerated. Before I continue, just one little footnote. When we talk about the campus or the university, we're talking about two different entities. I'll give, you, I'll give you an example of what I mean. Uh, Shanghai University sponsors a world-class evaluation of the top universities in the world. So does the Times Educational Supplement of London. And they just issued their latest evaluations. So 15 top universities, five are in California. Usually it's Stanford or Caltech in the top two or three, Berkeley, UCLA, uh, USC, UCLA. Or, and, of course, Harvard and Yale, et cetera. America just dominates those, do- those selections. But here's the key thing. When you look at the criteria on page two, let's take Stanford was rated number two by the Shanghai uh, evaluation. They don't talk about the media department. They do not talk about the English department. The basis is not predicated on the philosophy department. It's the Stanford Linear Accelerator. It's the marriage with Silicon Valley, even the Hoover Institution. <laughs> So what we're talking about is primarily undergraduate programs and graduate programs in social sciences and English departments that are antithetical. And they kind of piggyback on the reputation of the university. So when you see an English professor at Stanford or Berkeley say, I teach at Berkeley, well, the prestige of that university is not based on the quality of his research anymore. It's based on a Nobel Prize laureate. And the proof of the pudding is in the eating. When they always list national science medals, they, uh, they list uh, MacArthur grants, but they usually don't talk about people's uh, path-breaking work in deconstruction or something. Just don't do it. So that's one thing to remember. Um, if you look at the week's news, this is, I just thought I'd just collate what happened uh, in the last couple of months that reappeared in the news. University of Missouri, we all remember Melissa Click, the professor who was a journalism journalism professor, a mentor about free speech, and she went to a free speech area and saw a student journalist. Instead of encouraging him to uh, report in transparent fashion what was going on, she said, give me some muscle and get him out of there. She was subsequently under public pressure and only because of public pressure fired. And incidentally, the University of Missouri's uh, enrollment for the fall of next year has gone down by 35%. And they're, they're suffering almost $40 million, in, uh, and they've had to close down dorms, so they're very worried. Yale University, an assistant, uh, a lecturer, actually, 
was cornered and shouted down, she's resigned. And what was her crime? She wrote a little memo in saying that when you have Halloween costumes, don't judge people and say this is politically correct or incorrect. And that was considered so hurtful to people, they surrounded her and with profanity-laced uh, lectures shouted her down. Let's go to Harvard University. Two or three things have happened at Harvard. The law school, the premier legal institution supposedly in, in the world, recently had a forum on the Middle East, and former foreign minister of Israel, Ms. Uh, Lindsay, was there, and she offered to entertain questions and answers, and a Palestinian legal student, law student got up and said, why are you so smelly? Does anybody notice how she stinks? And, I mean, it was shocking. Harvard was so embarrassed about that that they edited that question out of the transcript. They would not release the student's name, and they took the official video and censored it. But they did no, they offered no punishment for the, the student's comment. I guess they believe in free speech in some cases and not others. At the same law school, there was a supposedly racist incident where pictures, portraits of the African-American law faculty were defaced by putting a little piece of black tape along them. And there was an outrage. The dean said this was, Dean Minow said this was endemic of racism, and people called for an investigation. A conservative group said, we know there's a good likelihood that this was yet another manufactured incident. So there was supposed to be a transparent investigation. It concluded, and the university law school did not release the findings of what they found for obvious reasons. As I said, Stanford University 27 years ago eliminated Western Civ. There was a vote to reinstate it as a requirement. Six, six to one margin, it was defeated. Remember, these are students who believe in free speech, transparency, they adjudicate natural phenomenon by laws of reason rather than superstition and religion, and yet the only tradition that really embodies that uh, freedom and transparency, free markets, affluence, security, is the Western one, yet they don't want it to be a shared experience. So I could go on and on about all of these. They're in the, they're in the, in the news daily at infrequency. It's just really staggering. I'll just give you one more. One of my favorites was last week, the president of uh, Brown University decided that she didn't wanted to nip in the bud the race, class, gender protests, Black Lives Matter, all that stuff. So she promised $100 million to enrich the campus's diversity program. $100 million. I wonder if donors understood where their money was going. That would, that would have funded 25 or 30 professorships in mathematics, science, my dear discipline, classical languages and literature, but instead it went to the study of diversity. So we have to ask ourselves, what's going on? And so sort of like a doctor, let's look at the symptoms, see if we can come up with a diagnosis, offer a therapy and a prognosis. There are certain things that are, that are inexplicable in this current cycle of campus protests, and these are binaries or they're just so much, so many contradictions, they boggle the mind. We have the most, whether we like it or not, we have the most promiscuous, liberated, free-thinking generation of students in history. If we were going to any campus and we were to monitor their uses of drugs, their employment of uh, casual fashion, their familiarity with obscenities, and their sexual practices, you would say there's no rules whatsoever. Yet when you look at the institutional response to that, it's Victorian to the core. 
Universities are now throwing out the due processes amendments of the 5th and 14th Amendment. If you are alleged of sexual assault, uh, the process of due, due process disappears. Now, sexual assault is a terrible thing. It happens at a frequency of about 1%, 2% of every uh, 1,000 people per capita in the country today. The university is arguing that it either happens at the rate of 25 to 20% to students, either per year or during their experience. Think of that statistic. And they use that to justify these draconian methods of assuming somebody's guilty by the sheer allegation. If that were true, the uh, rape rate in East Palo Alto, Harlem, and New Haven, Connecticut is about 1% to 2% per 1,000. That would mean that a Stanford parent, some of you, grandparents, would say, to protect the safety of my daughter, I insist she get an apartment in East Palo Alto and so she can avoid the the crime on the Stanford campus. <laughs> Nobody believes that. So these things are mutually contradictory. We have a lot of sympathy, I think all of us do, for students. Um, until, I think, 1972, there was no tuition charge at the University of California. There were just student fees. Nobody in their right mind would ever think that students today have a collective $1 trillion in debt. It's warped every aspect of our civilization. People are marrying later. They're having fewer children. They're not able to buy houses because they're struggling under a staggering 100000 200000 uh, debt. And yet, just when you want to be sympathetic with students, you see that what they're protesting against is not too many administrators. For example, the CSU system over the last 25 years increased full-time faculty positions by 3% and administration by 212%. Students are not angry about that. It's even more frightening when the president of Brown offered $100 million, $100 million to diversity. The students did not say, that came out of my tuition. They said, the official group that had arbitrated that figure with her said that was insufficient and insincere. Very strange, when I go to the Stanford campus and I park my Honda, I see BMWs and I see Mercedes. But you know what? You still see it at Cal State, Fresno, and San Jose State as well. So we've got this strange phenomenon of prolonged adolescence, of very sophisticated sybarites that are staggering under debt, and yet their personal consumption is subsidized by us through student loans and they want debt relief, and they're basically saying, we're very liberal and progressive, but we do like nice cars, we like rock climbing walls, and we want people who never went to college as taxpayers, the plumber, the tile setter, the farmer, they have to bail us out. It doesn't make any sense. It, the university is supposed to be a liberal institution. As I mentioned before, the 5th and 14th Amendment have gone out the window in terms of, in terms of due process, but for people who are so sophisticated, you would think they would believe in free speech. But controversial aspects of literature have to have a trigger warning. In my field, one of the most uh, entertaining of all Roman elegists is Ovid, Ovid's Metamorphosis. And yet there was a movement in the American Philological Society to have a trigger warning because some of Ovid's poetry were felt under our standards in the 21st century de de degrading to women. But what Ovid is trying to describe is the sort of stuff that goes on every night in a dorm room on campus. <laughs> it really does. So that he has the, so again, they want it both ways. They want to be both 
uh, Roman and Victorian at the same time. And what is a microaggression? The fact that you have that oxymoron micro means that it really isn't an aggression. These are people who confront a lecture at Yale, surround her, and use the F word right in her face, and then they're saying that there's certain things that people say that aren't really aggressive, but I feel that they're, they're subtly aggressive, so we're going to call it a microaggression. That can be an allegation against you. Bernie Sanders had a very admirable early career. He fought for the desegregation of dorms on the University of Chicago campus. Today, he's in support of something called safe spaces. That is, that there should be designated areas on campus where particular races or gender can only congregate. It's the most Confederate 1850s idea that you can imagine, and it's at the university. So what I'm trying to get at is it's very hard to, to be sympathetic when you see these abject hypocrisies. One of my favorite is that it's supposed to be a very egalitarian place, but if you look at the disparity between part-time teachers who have the same terminal degree as full-time, well, especially full professors top step, it's about four to one. So the CSU system, the largest university system in the world, has about 48% of their units taught by part-time teachers. They have no job security. They don't have the same level of um, uh, benefits. And yet they teach the same class. In some cases, they have the same degree. It's right in front of everybody. And yet the students will go to the university and hear a professor lecture to them about Walmart and how unfair Walmart is when the pay discrepancy between their own faculty makes Walmart look postmodern. So it's, it's, it's very hard to, to, uh, to take these students very seriously or to be sympathetic. If any of the Hoover faculty or fellows were to go to a university, it would be very hard to give a lecture without being intimidated. Condoleezza Rice was disinvited at Rutgers. Hersey Alley was disinvited. Lason, uh, Jason Riley, who's spoken to us before just last week, was disinvited from Virginia Tech. I can remember my favorite moment was I was asked to give a talk on a book I wrote, Mexifornia, and on integration, assimilation, and intermarriage, the melting pot, as being preferable to multiculturalism and the salad bowl separatism. I thought that was a pretty classical liberal argument. I have people in my own family are Hispanic. I thought it would be an easy thing to do. Right during the lecture, people walked in carrying a placard uh, with my face with an X through it, waved it so I could not see the audience. So finally, I, before I started, I just looked at this dean who was crouching like this in the back. I said, do I get paid or not? Because if I still get paid, I'll sit up here and talk to these kids. But if I'm not going to get paid, I'm going to leave if I don't give the lecture. And he, he, he walked out the door. He didn't want any part of it. And of all the things you could say to humiliate today's students, there's only one thing that really got to them. I said, you people are all spoiled brats. You're up here, you have nice cars, you're playing like you're an adult, and you're indulging in the tactics of the 1930s in Italy and Germany. And that really did strike them, because they feel that they're so sophisticated and liberal, when in fact, they're part of a very illiberal system. So these are the symptoms, and now we have to find the diagnosis. What causes this stuff? Well, part of it is that people between the ages of 17 and 22 are crazy. You were, I as, we all are. I can remember when I went to uh, the University of California, Santa Cruz, believe it or not, after, right after it opened, there was a demonstration in 1971 against Nixon and the, the expansion of the war into Cambodia. And I wanted to see what this was like. I came from a very conservative rural high school 
outside of Selma, California, and they were walking, everybody started yelling and say, it's not fair that the cows, they're not liberated. They're locked up just like we are. The campus had all these pastures, and of course the road was on Empire Grade was sort of busy, so they went and they pulled down the barbed wire, and they let all these cows, one of which was smashed and splattered all over the world. I thought, this is really crazy. People will do and say anything. And remember that if we were talking in the 19... 1930s, the big fad was swallowing goldfish. Some of you might, I don't want to say any of you remember it, but <laughs> Massachusetts passed a law outlawing uh, swallowing goldfish. People were worried both about goldfish and parasites getting in your intestines from swallowing these raw fish. 1950s, it was uh, cramming telephone booths. Remember that? I can remember when I was a little boy, about five or six, my grandfather said, there's something crazy that there was a I don't know if anybody remembers this. There was a fad called hunkering down where students would try to squat and see who could squat the longest. So people do straight crazy things. And right now, Black Lives Matter and Occupy Wall Street and microaggressions and trigger warnings and shouting down speakers is sort of a fantasy. There was a good clip, if anybody saw at the University of Massachusetts, where this young woman starts screaming F words and shut up. And then she goes, I'm for free speech. I don't want hate speech. And then she goes, don't treat me like a child. I think it was Christine Hoff Summers said, well, then don't act like a child. But it, it, So part of that is just insanity. The other part is the institutional framework of the modern university. And we could go on and on about that. But one of the archaic institutions is tenure. Did anybody in your own profession in private commerce or government have this idea that after six years of faculty governance and fellow observation that you get a lifetime ticket to free employment. I know I was a part-time teacher in farming uh, for two or three years at the CSU system, and they would tell me, you have to be there at 8 o'clock. We're giving you all the 8 o'clock classes, and we're going to evaluate you to see if you have your office hours. And I, I, I wrote two books. I was so worried I might not get a job. I finally got a job. I kept doing the same thing, and then all of a sudden, at the end of six years, the secretary says, when do you want to teach? I said, well, what, what time should I teach? It's up to you. You make your, you make your hours. And, I, and the chairman came and put his arm around me and said, hey, the CSU requirement is one book. You'll never have to publish again. You ever thought about being a park ranger in the summer? <laughs> and it was amazing. So I said, well, don't we get post-tenure review? He said, yeah, you review your friend, and he reviews your class. That's how it is. So we have a structure of people. And remember, when they retire, the university so much believes in the tenured system that they, on 50% of the cases, they don't replace them because <laughs> they farm out the job to part-timers on a contractual basis without full benefits. But we have a system of professors that are advising our youth that aren't subject to the same anxieties that you are. These are not people that Donald Trump talked to yesterday in West Virginia, coal miners. They're not people who went through the Great Farming Depression of the 1990s. They're not people who were restructured. So we have a feudal medieval system that is for some reason a sacrosanct. And we need to say to professors, you're part of America. This is the 21st century system. We can issue a series of four- to five-year contracts. You, You promise to do this amount of publishing or this research or this type of student evaluation or these projects. And if you don't do it, you're subject to the same consequences as everybody else's. I think that is part of the problem along with this youthful Energy. Another part of the problem is that in this university changed between 1965 and 1975. Until then, the university was kind of a quirky place where everybody had an escape or a refuge 
from the humdrum of American society, and you could act like a socialist, or you could act like a Nazi. Whatever you wanted to do, the idea was Socratic disinterested inquiry. We're going to be empirical. We're going to be inductive. We're going to teach you great authors, facts of the world, scientific method, and then you will come up with your own ideas. And we're not really invested in what those ideas were. But during the Vietnam War and the Civil Rights Movement and the Women's Movement, the idea became institutionalized that society is so inherently biased, the corporation, the church, religion, government, partly because of Vietnam, partly because of this age of reform, that the university cannot play by those warped rules. We have to be fair and balanced by being imbalanced and unfair because we're set we're wounded fawns. We're set against the entire world. So instead of being inductive, we're going to be deductive. I can remember I was the head once of the General Education Committee, and we were supposed to look at critical thinking courses. So the sociology department came in, and it was all about why marijuana was really good for you and why it should be legal. And then the uh, media studies came in. It was about gays and transgender. This was 20 years ago. And then the uh, politics came in about uh, the Reagan disaster. And I said, I thought we were supposed to be inductive. And they said, well, we are inductive. Everybody knows these things are true. So the idea was that we only have students for four or five years, so we're going to train them in a particular way to counteract the larger negative currents and forces in society. And remember that that legacy in the 60s created a very different type of student, and now those types of students are deans, associate provosts, provost, um, presidents of the university. We have a kind of a game a lot of us old professors do that when we see a new UC chancellor or a new provost at a very prestigious university, we all email. You remember this jerk 25 years ago. I went to school with him. Remember this guy? Remember he wrote this stupid thing? Well, they're all now rewarded for that insanity. And they are the, it is, the patients are running the mental institution. And you can look at the, just look at the bios of most campus presidents. So that's something. But that still doesn't, that explains, that explains the upheavals in the 1980s and 90s. But why would this volcano erupt suddenly? I think a lot of it has to do with the administration of the last eight years. I think that the liberal idea of a university was transformed, the liberal idea of everything was transformed into something called progressivism. And Obama has moved the entire struggle many points to the left. And you, you can see that with the candidacy of Bernie Sanders. He would not have existed during the 1990s to that successful degree. And it's very insidious. So we're all, fast, we're all focused on the uncouth crudity of Donald Trump, but we don't understand or we don't care when that crudity is expressed by someone far more mellifluous and politically correct. I was thinking the other day, what if Donald Trump said, we've got to punish our enemies, we've got to take a gun to a knife fight, we've got to get into their faces, or there's a criminal case, that, that boy that got killed will look just like my other son. Or he went to a White House correspondence dinner like Obama did the other night, and a white country western singer got up and said, Hey, yo, Donnie, hey, cracker, you did it. That's what they use the N-word to talk about Obama. Mr. Gilmore did. I mean, that would be a, a pure sign of racial solidarity that would be reprehensible. Or what if we had an attorney general under Trump and said, You know, I've got to protect my people. 
talking about my people. Or he said, you know what, the nation, I want to end affirmative action, and they don't want to do it. The nation is a nation of cowards. So we have been acculturated to a discourse and an idea, whether it's Obama running against, uh, running against, that was one of his uh, planks in his campaign of 2008, that he disapproved of gay marriage. And, of course, transgendered restrooms was taboo. And that, that idea by 2016 is basically if you don't believe in gay marriage and transgender, then you're so far reactionary you can't discuss it. So the positions that were mainstream under the Democratic Party have really metamorphosized into something unrecognizable by 2016. And that has filtered down to the campus. So I, I really do believe that trigger warnings and microaggressions and Mattress Girl and all this stuff that goes on the campus in 2008 would have been controversial, and now it's passe. So we're pushing to the, the, next, the next level. I don't know if you remember, there was a term we use in American society called jumping the shark. He jumped the shark. It's based on a, one episode of Fonzie's Happy Days when the series was, had been number one, and it was so getting so tired and expected that the screenwriters had to come up with something. And somebody said... Let's get Henry Winkler on, on water skis and have him jump over a plastic shark. And so when they did that, everybody said, oh, my God, they're really desperate. Well, campus protests have jumped the shark. When you have a $100 million gift and you say it's insufficient, or you're screaming and yelling at a lecture, lecturer at Yale over a Halloween costume, and you're supposed to be an adult, then you've jumped the shark. My favorite was a lot of students from CSU went to the Donald Trump rally and they were very angry at Trump's immigration. It's a legitimate position to take, I suppose, if you want, are. But what isn't legitimate is waving a Mexican flag while screaming that you're against Donald Trump's idea and then having a placard that says, Make America Mexico Again. And you think a minute. Think of that demonstration. People are demonstrating so they do not want people to go back. They're, they're idolizing the country that people left and they're denigrating the country they want to stay in. It doesn't make any sense. It jumped the shark. Let me finish by just suggesting what could you do about it, because whatever we tried to do, write these books. You know, I wrote a book on classics in the next, in the next uh, session of the American Philological Society. It was Who Killed Homer, uh, and it was an attack on us, and it was a discussion. And the same thing happened to a much greater degree with Alan Bloom, et cetera, but it didn't have any lasting effect. Is there anything that could, could change it? One of the things I'd just suggest, most of them have to do, by the way, with money. Money always is the where to look if you want reform. But why don't we have an, a national exit test? So if a university wants to say we're going to get rid of Western Civ or we're not going to have a foreign language requirement, we're going to have media studies or environmental studies or leisure studies or Chicano studies or Asian studies, and the word studies film will take up 50% of the curriculum, you will just say that's fine, you can do it, but when the student... About, graduates, he's going to have to take a national competency test, just like you do with a bar exam or a medical exam. And I have a feeling that most of today's students would plunk that. And it seems so obvious we require ACT and SAT scores to get in. Why don't you just say whatever your SAT or ACT score was, four years later we'd like you to be 20 points higher. If you're not, you don't get your bachelor's degree. You're not certified in the way that we certify other degrees. I think that would be the most controversial and hated suggestion on the campus today <laughs> because people know they're not inculcating real knowledge. I mentioned getting rid of tenure. I think you've got to do it. I understand that many 
points in my career, if, if I had not had tenure, I would have been fired probably for the things I tried to argue for. But I think it's worth, worth having that evolution. Financially, I know this might be controversial, but donors should, before you give money to a university, I think you very carefully need to ask where the money is going to be spent, how it's going to be manifested, and you need to follow up on it and have conditions. We try to say, well, it's free speech. Well, it's not free speech because uh, anybody knows how a foundation works on the conservative side, a Rockefeller Foundation, Ford Foundation, a Guggenheim. It's always evolves leftward, and universities are the same way. And donors are only empowering that transformation unless they're active uh, participants in how their legacies are adjudicated on campus. I think, and I, in that regard, I think we need a national consensus that there has to be an outside adjudicator that says this is a free we have something called the freedom index about universities uh, excuse me foreign countries we need it with universities too we need people to say what is the policy on this campus about due process and free speech and minority dissent and speakers and if and then rate them and if if your alma mater is down there um, you know with Argentina in the 1970s then I don't I wouldn't give them a dime until they do it Two other things, we talk about all this conservative money, where should it go, where should the Koch brothers, where should all these people invest? I, I think they really need to start endowing universities that are completely new. And uh, we, don't, we haven't founded any new universities, but it seems that people could get together and say, you know what, we want a, a big version of Hillsdale or St. John's or, or St. Thomas of Aquinas. I think that would be very wise to do. And um, finally perhaps most controversially. I'm very, uh, getting very skeptical of the tax-exempt status of some universities. Why in the world does Harvard University get $35 billion and, and poses as, a, as an egalitarian but, but really an intolerant institution? And remember that Lois Lerner went after tax-exempt groups because they said they were not balanced. And Obama said she, they didn't find a thing about Lois Lerner. It would seem to me that we could find some kind of compromise that if a university had an endowment over $5 billion maybe, $3 billion, then uh, we, they would have to prove to their tax-exempt auditors that they really are meritocratic and they're balanced and they're not hyper-partisan. And that would have enormous consequences, as you know, in terms of property taxes and local revenues. And I think that liberal states, blue states, California, Connecticut, Massachusetts, as they get desperate for cash and they look at these 35, 25, 20 billion dollar cash cows, uh, they're going to be uh, much more interested in the finances and then the principal. And with that, I'll uh, take questions. Thank you very much. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.